When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. Here in the UK, we have a heat wave. We have a heat wave, so people are hopefully hiding inside, taking some shade listen to podcasts to get them through the grueling heat, which in other countries would be considered the heat of a gentle spring morning. Anyway, so it's total meltdown here. I've got another podcast for you. It's my mum and dad. Yeah, my mum and dad. You know what? Your mum and dad asked to come on the pod. You can't say no. And why would I want to say no? Because they've written a great book, another great book. You heard them last year on the podcast talking about their last book. Well, they've used lockdown very wisely and they've written another book. This time it is Treasures of World History. 50 incredibly important documents from every continent, apart from Antarctica, so from all the rest of the continents. And it is a story of our journey, the history of the world, through these documents. And they loved it so much, they're already launched into another book. They're already halfway through writing another book. Shielding, lockdown, no childcare to worry about, neighbours bringing round delicious shepherd's pies and fruit to sustain them, equals extreme productivity. Who knew? This is Mum and Dad. You can go and... Listen to all the back episodes of this podcast exclusively on History Hit TV. It's like our new history channel, our new Netflix for history. You subscribe using the code POD1, P-O-D-1, as a voucher. And that means you get a month for free and then you get one month for just one pound, euro, dollars. You basically get two months for the cost of a pound, a buck, a euro, which is, I mean, pretty sweet. I mean, that's getting us towards Christmas, dare I say. Two months from now? I'm going to be looking at the back end of October. You know, we're going to, you're going to be Christmas, going to be on the horizon. Anyway, that's a thought. So you do that for pod one, and then you get access to this amazing history channel. We've got hundreds of history documentaries, hundreds of podcasts. You're going to love it. Go and check it out. In the meantime, here is my mum and dad, Peter Snow and Anne McMillan, talking about treasures of world history. Enjoy. Well, hi, guys. Got you back on the podcast. <laughs> Great, Dan. Hi, Dan. Okay, so what's the idea behind this one this time, Mum? Well, we thought we'd look at documents from around the world after your book with Dad's on documents, British history, famous documents. We decided to go a little bit wider, and so we looked at documents from all over the place, lots of different countries, and over a huge time period. At least one from every continent, and uh, they're great monuments to human endeavour, aren't they? I mean, the Wright brothers have their first flight, the telegram, they sent back their dad saying, we've done it. 
One of my favorites, the Great New Zealand Petition yeah, for the, the Women. Yeah, the suffrage petition basically helped women get the vote in New Zealand, making it the first country in the world that gave women the vote. And of course, we had to include Tutankhamun's wonderful chalice, that lovely cup that Carter found in the tomb, which says, you know, you're going to go into a paradise of heaven, be happy there. We also cover a huge time period, starting back about 4,000 years ago, with the Code of Hammurabi, the first complete legal code that has ever been found, right up to the 21st century map of the universe. Pretty good, pretty good. Okay, now listen, I've asked you to choose three each. I don't know how you chose. I was involved in the choosing of these documents. It's very, very difficult. But now I'm asking you to choose your sort of three, three favourite ones. Mum, why don't you start? What documents have you chosen from the whole of human history that you think are important? Well, as a woman, I've chosen Mary Wollstonecraft's book, The Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which was published in 1792. She was a really remarkable woman who changed the role of females in the 18th century. Like other philosophers of the time, John Locke, Thomas Paine, she believed that reason was the key to understanding and using it to change the world around us. But Wollstonecraft went one step further. She argued that since women were rational beings, they should be treated the same as men. She urged women to take control of their lives through education and to move on from what she called being spaniels and toys of men. Surprisingly, the book was quite well received at the time of publication, although one critic did call her a hyena in petticoats. We had her on the podcast before, and I think it partly was well received because the first edition, no one knew it was written by a woman. When they told people it was written by a woman, reviews kind of tailed off at that point. Well, also, they tailed off a bit later in her life when her past was revealed because she had rather a crazy life. After she wrote the book, she went off to Paris because she supported the French Revolution, and she fell in love with an American and had his baby. He refused to marry her. She then tried to commit suicide twice, and was basically very, very unhappy. Came back to England, met a British philosopher named Edward Godwin, and became pregnant with him. So uh, even though she didn't believe in marriage, she did marry him. They had a child called Mary, who fascinatingly enough became Mary Shelley. She married the poet Shelley and wrote the book Frankenstein. Anyway, poor old Mary Elder died shortly after giving birth to her daughter, And her husband decided to write her biography, and he wanted to be absolutely truthful about her life. So he told about her illicit affair. He wrote about her suicide attempts, her illegitimate child, and the fact that she didn't believe in marriage. And people literally just stopped reading her book. And it wasn't until 100 years later when feminists in the late 1900s started demanding equal rights that they rediscovered her work. So she finally became the mother of feminism. She's a terrific person. Wonderful story. Amazing. It's amazing. She also went on some mad treasure hunting expedition as well. Extraordinary, extraordinary. Dad, what's your first document you want to talk about? I will go right back to one of the most extraordinary moments in world history when the Athenians decided that the way to run a country was for every single man, unfortunately, and no women, no slaves, every single man to be able to vote for decision-making. And they... Uh, all gathered in the Agora, there's a down at the bottom of the marketplace, or they gathered up on a, a hill called the Pnyx and up the top. They all put their hands up or down, depending on what they want to do something. And one of their wonderful, most my favourite habit, and the one that led to the document we've chosen, which is just a piece of pottery with a writing on it, a bit of writing, which says the name of those they want to chuck out of the country. And what they would do is they would say, right, this year... We're going to have about six names in front of us, and we're going to see which one gets 6,000 
votes. So the one that got 6,000 votes is the one that Chop had to go into exile, this chap. And well, one of our four bits of little sh- pottery sherds is one with Megacles on it. And poor old Megacles, he may have been taken to cleaners because he may not have been guilty at all, but his family were thought to have signalled to the Persians that Athens was a ripe for taking. If they went round the outside Cape Sunium and they came up to Athens, they'd find it unoccupied by the Athenians. And so his family was thought guilty, he was thought guilty, and the poor chap who got frightfully rich and prosperous after the war had all gone and ended. People got very jealous of him, and they all voted for Megacles to be thrown out. Poor chap was thrown out, and for ten years he had to stay outside Athens. So I just think this is a wonderful exercise in direct democracy. It's never been repeated. No country has ever managed to give every single person, except in a referendum. It's like having a daily referendum to decide decisions that matter to people. I think it's an absolutely wonderful experience they must have had in Athens. It must have been total chaos, but never mind. And it was real democracy. didn't the word ostracon mean ostracism? Yes, of course. I mean, the ostracon means you were, if you were voted against, you were thrown out, you were ostracised. And that's become a sort of byword now for people being exiled or being sort of put in Coventry. Put in Coventry? Haven't you heard that expression? No, I've never heard it. Put in Coventry? No. I'm, sent to I'm Coventry. delighted you have. Yeah, nobody will talk to you. Yes, it means it means sent, that you're you're sent, to you're, you're sent to Coventry or put in Coventry or you're ostracised. You're ostracised. Okay, well, I'm, okay. <laughs> Poor old Coventry. Mum, what's your next document? It is another personal choice. It's the BNA Act, the British North America Act of 1867, which created my country, Canada. And mine. I got a Canadian passport, Mum, <laughs> thanks to you. I've actually seen it actually, Dan, in the Parliamentary Archives in the Palace of Westminster. It's tucked away between the Metropolitan Poor Act and the Dog Licensing Act. So not a very uh, auspicious place, but it's sitting there, a little white scroll with a red ribbon around it, and it's wonderful to think that that created the country of Canada. I'll tell you a little bit of the background. There were three British colonies in North America, Canada, which was made up of Ontario and Quebec, and Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And political leaders from all these provinces appealed to the British government in 1867 to become independent. And they wanted to call the new country the Kingdom of Canada. The Brits said no to that, so it was named the Dominion of Canada. And on February the 12th, 1867, a bill was introduced into the British House of Lords allowing Canada to run its own domestic affairs, but Britain continued controlling its foreign affairs and defence. It was quickly passed, and the British North America Act became law in Canada on July the 1st. 1867. Uh, Hence Canada Day to this day. That's right. That's our national Mm. day. And it's sort of fun to read reports of how various cities celebrated the occasion. 101 gun salute in Ottawa, the nation's capital. Toronto had fireworks. Trumpets were blown in Montreal. And there was a military parade in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Over the years, more and more provinces joined Canada. There are 10 today and three territories. And gradually, more powers were transferred to Canada from London. But it wasn't until 1982 that Britain finally relinquished its power over Canada. Really? Yeah. The Constitution was taken back by Pierre Elliott Trudeau in 1982. Wow. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? 
How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Now, the Queen still has a state, doesn't she? Yes, she is. Yes, Oddly, she is. in a way, but there we are. I mean, they, they still have that little tie with Britain, which is nice. Okay, Dano, what is your next document? Well, I'd like to spring ahead now to the extraordinary moment in Mexico when people who'd never been found by Europeans suddenly were discovered and were invaded by Hernán Cortés in 1520. And the, the extraordinary thing that happened was that Cortés and his chaps conquered this country. They took over Mexico. They took over the Aztec kingdom, the old Aztec empire. They took it over, they killed the king, Montezuma, and they discovered that the Aztecs couldn't write. They could draw pictures, they could do everything. They could run their country quite effectively. They had some terrible, terrible practices like human sacrifice, but they couldn't write. And so this meant that they had no history because they hadn't written it down. Some of them, though, remembered what had happened and they had stories through their families. And so a very bright governor of the new state of Mexico, a chap called Antonio de Mendoza, said, look, before the Aztecs die out, as it were, before the memory of what it was all like die out, let's write it down in Spanish and let's get the Aztecs to draw pictures about where they remembered real life was, the life under Montezuma, what they remember, the traditions. Let them tell us in their words what it was. We'll write it down and we'll get them also to draw pictures about what happened. So we'll have the history of this extraordinary empire all written down, all memorised in pictures, illustrations and so on. And so they sat down, they did it, it took them about five or ten years and they finally produced this wonderful, wonderful, it's the most beautiful thing, it's now in the Bodleian Library in Oxford and you can see these beautiful pictures, all beautifully coloured, the Codex Mendoza it's called, it's called after Governor Mendoza himself and it's absolutely smashing. It really is lovely. Pictures of women drinking. Apparently, it was a great thing to be known as a great drinker. So there's a wonderful picture of a woman drinking this wonderful sort of cocktail, whatever it was, and getting very drunk indeed. And this is welcome. This is a good thing to do. It's welcomed. And the Spanish record this and so on. And they record all sorts of ways in which Montezuma ran his kingdom. It's a marvellous moment in history when a document is produced by a people who couldn't do it themselves. They had to do it with their conquerors, the Spanish. 
and you get this remarkable, beautiful piece of kit, which is the Codex Mendoza, which is now in the Bodleian Library. We just had a podcast, actually, Dad, which you should have listened to last month with Professor of History at Rutgers uh, called Camilla Townsend. She's been looking at all these amazing oral histories that were written down, the, the generations following the conquest as well. I've no idea about that stuff that exists. It's so cool. So I no wonder you chose that one, Dad. Excellent. Mum, what's your next one? Well, I'm moving into the 20th century rather rapidly. And we had a big debate when we were drawing up a list, a short list of the 50 documents, as you will remember, because you helped us with it, about what exactly is a document. And we decided that a used envelope with a (laughs) list of cities drawn up for the Beatles' 1964 (laughs) tour of North America was indeed a document. It was written by Brian Epstein, their manager, and it was the first time the Beatles toured the U.S. They had 33 concerts in 32 days in cities all the way from Montreal to San Francisco. The group was a huge hit in Britain by this point, but the Americans were a bit sniffy about them. Critics made jokes about the fact that they were, you know, floppy-haired and wore these silly suits and funny boots. They hadn't really been taken seriously musically in the way they had in Britain, but they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show early in 1964, and there were, the audiences just went mad about them. So this is when Brian decided we got to do a tour and wrote on the back in front of this envelope where they'd go. They arrived in San Francisco in August 1964, and they were immediately surrounded by screaming fans everywhere. In that first concert, 50 people reached the stage in spite of huge barriers that the police had put up, and 50 more were injured in the crush. In New York City, there were riots wherever they went. In Atlantic City, the Beatles had to jump into a seafood truck to get away from, you know, fans were running down the street after them. So the tour was huge, and it was a great success. Were you one of those fans, Mum? Yeah, I was. And, you know, they came to Toronto, and I didn't go to their concert much to my huge regret in later life. But my brother and I remember hearing the cheers coming from Maple Leaf Gardens, which was about a mile south of our house. We could hear the cheers as the Beatles sang song after song. It was great. I met the Beatles. I interviewed them back in 1964. And uh, they were absolutely charming guys. And they were wonderful to interview. Terribly easy and pleasant. Yeah, they looked they look well, wonderful. Very, very no, nice Dad, I think, didn't John Lennon, wasn't he quite rude to you? You may remember that, but I don't. Well, because you didn't know who he was. That was oh, oh, no, I did. No, 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 no. That was, no, no, I knew who John Lennon was. No, no, I think you're talking about... That, <laughs> that was, was Barbara Streisand. Yeah, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> terrible story, which I could tell you about. Nothing whatever to do with beautiful documents. But I, I had to interview Barbara Streisand at London Airport. She was coming back from some trip. And I had no idea who she was or what she'd done. And I'd been thrown in. I, was, I think I was covering something else than this. Go to the airport, interview Barbara Streisand. And I said to her, I said... Uh, so, um, what's your latest hit? <laughs> and, and she looked at me and said, look, if you don't know what my latest hit is, and I don't think you even know who I am, do you? You might as well stop this interview. And so I sort of struggled to make some sense of it all, and I went back and I was in terrible trouble. But can I just finish my story about the Beatles? Of course. The Beatles then went on to tour all over the world, but they really ended up hating it. And within two years, they'd stopped touring altogether because John Lennon said nobody was listening to their music anymore. They were just screaming and jumping around. And Paul McCartney did an interview, and it was rather sad. He said, I just dread the time I spend backstage after a live gig waiting for the armored car to take me back to my hotel. He said, let's just stop all this. We've made enough money. Let's all stop and go to Brighton. Very nice. Okay, Dad, what do you got for us? 
Well, I want to take you on to one of these extraordinary documents. I mean, there's so many that I could choose from, but I, I would plump, I think, for one that illustrates the extraordinarily intensely personal nature of diplomacy. And here we have Winston Churchill sitting with Joe Stalin in the autumn of 1944, and Stalin's armies are pouring all over the Eastern Bloc. I mean, they're all pouring into Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia. And Churchill's there struggling to try and secure a sort of democratic future for these countries because everybody's in the West is pressing him to watch out for the Russians. They're all communists and they mustn't make these countries communists. So Winston sat down there with Stalin. They had a sort of, they probably had a few vodkas together. I'm sure whether Churchill enjoyed vodka. He may have had some whiskey. Anyway, um, Churchill thought, I don't know, I'm going to scribble down the piece of paper the way I think Europe, Eastern Europe should be divided. And so he scribbled down. He started with Greece. And he put the West, others, us lot, 90%, Russians, 10%. Then he went for Romania. Romania, funnily enough, was the first country the Russians poured into in Eastern Europe. They went down and then up. And Romania, Churchill said, all right, 90% Soviet, 10% the rest of the world. And then he went on. It's really pretty cheeky of him because the Russian army was virtually there already. And he said, Hungary, 50-50. Yugoslavia, 50-50. Then he had the cheek to say Bulgaria, which is absolutely totally clobbered by the Soviet Union's armies. He said 75% all right, Stalin, 25% West. He didn't include Poland, which is interesting, because, of course, Poland was the big country, and Churchill had many Polish friends. He knew about the Polish democratic movement. He knew he ought to be guaranteeing Poland for democracy, but he didn't mention it for some reason, because he knew Stalin would just laugh. Anyway, he passes across to Stalin, Stalin looked at it and then ticked it in the top right-hand corner and passed it back to Churchill. And Churchill thought, well, that's interesting. He sort of accepted one or two bits of my rather cheeky suggestion. And he said to Stalin, do you think I ought to burn this rather cynical piece of paper? Because, I mean, really, we're dividing up Europe rather disgracefully. And Stalin said, no, no, keep it. And so he kept it. But he described it later on as a naughty message he'd passed to Stalin. And, of course... It didn't do Churchill a great deal of good, but he did get Greece. He was very proud of the fact that Stalin promised him that he wouldn't make Greece 100% communist. And Stalin, interestingly, never supported the communist revolution in Greece that followed the Second World War. And so Churchill thought his little bit of paper, it wasn't a great use, had done something. But for me, it's not so much the effect it had on Europe, but this amazing way in which two people of such importance can discuss the future of the world. And, and leaders, it's through every century that leaders have enormous power. It's funny that he's arguably stuck to the Greek thing, but the rest of the countries, Britain, the Western, going to look into it. He laughed at Bulgaria and, and Hungary, the idea that you would divide Hungary up half and half. Of course, in Hungary, the tragedy of Hungary was it was a, a communist regime that got increasingly unpopular. And eventually, of course, the revolution of 1956. Indeed, we think they do. In 56, they sort of thought, my God, maybe we've gone too far, but they could have had no choice but to crush it, which they did. And then, of course, eventually, in 89, 90, Hungary became independent and democratic. Well, excellent, guys. Thank you very much. There are 50 documents in this book. So I am very excited about your new project. Can you tell the world yet what your next book is, your next bestseller? Well, we are embarking on a, it's been done before, but we're going to do it in a quite new, readable and exciting and clear way, is the story of England's and then Britain's kings and queens, the monarchy in this country from start to finish. And it's a very exciting project. 
we've got about 50 monarchs, starting with Alfred the Great, and we're getting on with it. We're getting on rather well. Are you including Lady Jane Grey? Of course, she's oh, a monarch really? on her own okay, right. interesting. Absolutely. What about the Empress Matilda? Yes, she, I think she gets a mention. I think Anne's, we certainly get a mention. There's I, a few I haven't got to her yet. Okay. <laughs> and Prince Louis, are you going to do Louis in I wonder if you would ask about yeah. Prince Fleming Louis. You mean King Louis the First? Well, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. He was, he was proclaimed, he was acclaimed, wasn't he? Yeah, he was acclaimed. By a lot of the barons in England as king. And he, he lasted a month or two, didn't he? Yeah, but never crowned. And Mark Morris will get angry at me because you're meant to crown medieval <laughs> kings. Well, thank you very much, guys. So good luck with this other documents book. What's it called, Mum? Read it out. It's called Treasures of World History, The Story of Civilization Told Through Its 50 Most Important Documents. That's pretty bold. It's a pretty bold claim. Good luck with it, guys. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.